Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Call the confession this morning is from Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Many are the burdens and concerns of life. We are faced with them daily. When one burden is lifted or a particular concern is resolved, there are several more to take its place at the forefront of our minds. The cares of life are exactly that, the cares of life. They are a natural part of our lives here on earth. Notice that this psalm from, sorry, notice that the verse from Psalm 55 does not command us to have no burdens. The expectation is we will, of course, have them. So it tells us what to do with them. Cast your burden on the Lord. Why? Because he will sustain you. He will take care of you and all that concerns you. And if we don't cast them on the Lord, well, then we sin. Because our natural tendency, even when our cares are legitimate, is to carry them to excess, to become anxious and worried. Recall that the instruction to avoid anxious care is earnestly taught us by our Savior and then reiterated several times by the apostles. Such teaching cannot be neglected because the very essence of anxious care is the imagining that we are wiser than God. It is the thrusting of ourselves into his place to try to do for him what he has already undertaken to do for us. In our worrying, we act as if we think he has forgotten, or we take our burden upon ourselves as if he were unable or unwilling to carry it for us. Now this disobedience to his plain teaching to not worry, this unbelief in his word, this presumption and intruding upon his jurisdiction is all sinful. But it is worse because anxious care often leads us to commit other acts of sin. When we cannot calmly leave our affairs to God, but instead carry own burdens, we are very likely to be tempted to use wrong means to help ourselves. We forsake God as counselor and resort instead to human wisdom. Then what God has said of the Israelites during the time of Jeremiah becomes true of us. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Anxiety makes us doubt God's loving kindness. If not kept in check, our love for him is in danger of growing cold. We feel mistrust. Our prayers become hindered. Our consistent example of faith is marred. And our life becomes characterized as as one of self-seeking. Let us instead have confidence in our God. Let us be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, cast our cares upon him. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God's word reminds us of our need to confess our sins. If you are willing and able, please kneel with me as we confess. Dear Father, we thank you for this, your text. And Lord, we thank you for the power and inspiration that you have given to the Apostle Matthew to write this. 
And uh, Lord, we pray that you would penetrate our hearts this day and that you would help us to see the glory of Jesus Christ standing before us, that we would see his, his emanating glory and that we would be changed by that because we are made more like him. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our fortress and our high tower, and we come to you this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, we come to text. I don't know if you figured it out by now, but I'm preaching through Matthew right now, and so we're just kind of going through, and you're hitting about every what third sermon or whatever, so um, fill in the gaps and, and some of that and catch you up on what's been going on um, as we've been going through at Christ the King Church over in Ferry. Um, going through the book of Matthew. So as we come out of chapter 10 and go into chapter 11 of Matthew, we, we, we first read this. Now, it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And Jesus and his new apostles, you see, are getting ready to depart. They're going to part ways for a little bit here. Jesus is stretching his apostles. He wants them to go out and experience things, and that's, that's a good thing. We, we do that, right? We do that as parents. Um, we do that as employers. had a young tour guide that uh, was, thought she could speak in front of people, and then when it came right down to it, and this is just like the last couple of weeks, when it came right down to it and she had to get up in front of people, it was like, uh, especially because me, her boss, is standing in the back, you know, critiquing her, <laughs> right? And so she's she's hearing this, and so I, I, the next tour that she she did, I kind of took over that tour for her. And the next tour that came through, I said, "Now you take this by yourself. I'm not going to be part of this tour." And so I pushed her out of the nest, right? Well, that's what Jesus is doing here, letting them go, letting them falter and stutter and do all of those things that they're going to do. But that's how. You get to where you need to be, right? That's just life. and So parents do that. Employers do that. That's all a part of growing into maturity. And so this is what Jesus is doing here. He's pushing his apostles out of the safety net that he has, the nest that he has created there for them. Um, and so they're going to go out and depart. And Jesus had instructed them. And he, as it says here, he He's commanded his 12 disciples um, what their ministry was to be like and what they were to do. So in chapter 10, Jesus first appoints the 12, and these are going to be his apostles. And then he commanded them about their mission, that they would go into the Israelites first. That was the first goal. Go to the Israelites, go to the people of Israel, preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? Preaching the kingdom of heaven at his hand, that is at hand. They're to be like their, their teacher, their rabbi, Jesus. And so they're to preach that message of repentance, just like Jesus had, just as John the Baptist had. So go forth, preach this. And then Jesus told them it wasn't necessarily going to be easy for them. It wasn't going to be walking down easy street. Right? So he was sending them out, he said, as sheep among the wolves. Right? And I think that's the sermon, the last sermon that I preached here, was being sent out sheep among wolves. And, there, and then he turns it on and he says there's going to be family members that might turn against them. This is how 
tough the message is that they're going to be preaching, the preaching of repentance, right, and the kingdom of heaven coming, and they're going to face some persecution because of their association with Jesus. Because of that, they're going to suffer persecution. And sometimes in that persecution, they would have to take up the cross, and they would have to die to themselves, die to their own agendas, die to their families even, and lose their life for the sake of Jesus. Some of them are going to lose their life for the sake of Jesus. All right? Not right away. You know, it comes down a little bit later. But that often has happened. That happened with the apostles. So, he says this. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We read that and it's just tough statements for us to hear. And that they're true. And, and, and anything that we put above Jesus is an idol. Okay, so that's the sort of the background that Jesus is bringing them up into and getting them ready to go out and preach the message of the gospel uh, to the Israelites. And now as we come into chapter 11, it picks back up from 10.5. So in 10.5 it says, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them. And so now we're kind of picking up after the teaching and he's catching us back up. And he says, Now it came to pass... When Jesus finished commanding his 12 apostles that he had departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And so Jesus sends the 12 out to teach and preach to the house of Israel. And Jesus presumably goes in a different direction from them. Okay, He's going to let them go and do what they need to do. And he's going to go and preach and teach in the cities of Galilee as well. But he's off by himself just as they're going off in twos and threes. Now... I'm guessing that people are still surrounding Jesus because we see the multitudes being talked about here still. So it's during this time while Jesus is apart from the twelve that John the Baptist then sends a question to Jesus with two of his disciples. And look at verse 2 and 3. Here's the question that John the Baptist has. And when John had heard in prison, so John's in prison, about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, that is Jesus, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now does that strike anybody as odd? Right? Think about who is this, who this is. John's asking, are you the Messiah? If you're not the Messiah, who is? When's he coming? Now, if you remember back to chapter 10, Jesus was talking about resistance, right? As we've just kind of summarized that real quickly, he's talking about resistance to his message that the disciples were going to face, but here comes resistance as well, in a form, right? From an unlikely place, from John the Baptist. He's saying, I don't get what you're doing, Jesus, okay? Here's John the Baptist asking Right? John the Baptist, we all know, he's the one who had leapt in his mother's womb when Mary came into the presence of his mother, right? Because the Savior had come in. So even from the womb, John the Baptist had had stirrings about who Jesus is. Right? And he's the one that baptized Jesus. Right? He's the one that saw the Holy Spirit come down upon Christ, just as we celebrate Pentecost today, as the Spirit came down upon the apostles later on, the Holy Spirit came down on Jesus and rested him like a, rested on him like a dove, right? 
He had heard at this baptism the voice of the Father in heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Right? So he sees the Spirit come. He sees and, and anoint Jesus for the work of the ministry there. And he hears the voice of the Heavenly Father saying, This is my beloved Son. I'm well pleased in him. He, John got it, and he said to his disciples, as Jesus is walking by, he's pointing to Jesus and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? I must decrease, and he must increase. And this is John that's saying this about Jesus. Right? He's saying about Jesus, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal strap. That's how great and glorious Jesus is. And now, John questions, right? What's going on? What is going on, John? John sends his disciples to ask Jesus if he's indeed the coming one, if he's the long-expected Messiah, if he's the anointed one, or is there going to be another? Now, what's going on with John? What, John, have you lost your faith? What's going on with you, John? But put yourself in John's shoes, right? Put yourself in John's shoes. Here he is, languishing in prison. He's in prison. Herod has imprisoned John. Because John was preaching boldly against Herod, having taken his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, unlawfully. And Herod didn't like that. Right? And Herodias didn't like that. Right? She's going to later on ask for John's head. Right? Through her daughter. Now, think about all that John had said and witnessed about Jesus, seen with his eyes and heard with his ears. And here he is in prison, languishing and doubting what, is, what he's witnessed. He's doubting his... The, the statements that he's made about Jesus. Right? He's doubting what he has witnessed, his experience. He's doubting his emotions, his feelings about who Jesus is. Why? Well, probably because he preached back in chapter 3 of Matthew that the Messiah had come and had now, and this is what John is saying, laid the axe to the root of the trees. Here's John saying, he's, he's making, he's preparing the way for Jesus, and he's saying, he's come, he's here, he has laid the axe to the root of the trees, and every tree which, which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Right? And John the Baptist is this fiery preacher out in the wilderness wearing camel skins, right? Camel hair, belt around his waist, eating locusts and honey. And he's probably taking some kind of Nazarite vow, right? John, you see, was like many of the Israelites. He had false notions of what the Messiah was going to do at this time. He had false notions of what Jesus was going to do at this time. He was confused about the Messiah's message and mission and what it was. You see, even the prophets can get discouraged and down 
can be brought down, brought low, right? Even the prophets can be discouraged and brought low. You see, the prophets aren't God. They're not the Son of God in the way that Jesus is, right? They didn't have the, the God, the Father, say, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, right? Hear Him. Like Jesus did. These guys are prophets, they're men. Right? They, they, they have weakness, right? They're, they're like us in a lot of ways. They can be very bold, and yet they still are men, they don't see everything. They don't see how the point A connects to point B and C and D and put it all together, right? They've been given some insight of certain things, but they don't get, it, get the whole picture and how it all works together for good. In other words, they're looking through a glass darkly, right? They're looking through a glass darkly as well. <clears throat> I mean, even, even great Elijah got down... Didn't he? Right, right after the prophets of Baal were like slaughtered, right? The 400 of them up on the mountain. And he comes down and then he's pursued. And he's crying out to God and he's saying, you know, basically, am I the only one left? Am I the only one left in Israel that has not bowed the knee to Baal? Right? And what does God do? He shows them, right? He's, he's depressed. He's down. He's in the dumps. Right? And God shows him, look, there's 7,000 that I have kept for myself who have not bowed their knee to Baal. So knock it off. Trust in me. I am God. Okay? John is a lot like us. We know that God is sovereign. Right? Every one of us, I think, would profess that. God is sovereign. Right? God is sovereign over all things. And so when tough stuff happens and struggles come, we begin to think, look, God, if you are sovereign, why did you allow this to happen to me? Has anybody ever thought that? Come on. <laughs> right? Have you ever thought that? God, I'm a good guy. You're sovereign. Why are you letting this happen to me? Right? We can even get angry with God. Right? Anybody ever been angry with God? Anybody ready to admit that? Right? Do we get angry with God because of those circumstances? And we know that he's sovereign and he could do something about it? I mean, imagine Job in his situation, right? We don't know a lot about Joseph and what he was dealing with, but you can imagine that he's in the same boat. Lord, what are you doing? I'm faithfully serving you, and I get thrown into prison. Right? I'm faithfully serving you, my brothers abduct me and put me in as a slave. Lord, I'm faithfully serving you. And the baker doesn't remember me. The steward doesn't remember me. Right? All of those things. He's struggling with those things. Right? You can imagine that. Where are you, God? How often do we hear the psalmist say that? Where are you, O Lord? 
So here's an important lesson for us. Two things. First, we know that even the greatest of men can still have doubts and questions about God. And they still need to look upon God. They still need to behold Him and His glory and be brought back to that and remember that and remember the gospel and be reminded of those things, even the greatest of men. Right? And that, that should be an encouragement to us. Right? That should be an encouragement to us. Because we don't see God then, oh, you had a doubt? Right? Stop. Don't, don't do that. Right? He doesn't do that. Right? He's not doing that. He's being gracious to us. Right? When we have doubts and questions about God, we can do that. And even the greatest have those. That's an encouragement. The second thing is that we have oftentimes false expectations of what God is doing. We have false expectations of what God should do. Right? We think we have things pretty well figured out. Right? Jesus, we got things figured out pretty well. You just need to get on board with us. Right? That we should get, God should just get with the program that we've determined. We have expectations of what He should do. God, we, we know what you should do. We've got some good suggestions for you. Maybe you should just kind of step in and make those things happen for us. And just like John, we think, why would God allow John the Baptist, right? Of all people, why would he allow John the Baptist to be locked up in prison? Because John the Baptist was preaching the word of God faithfully after all. What are you doing, God? What are you doing, Lord? He was being faithful to the mission that God had given him. He was serving God and upholding God's law. And he was calling people to repentance. He was being faithful to that mission. Jesus was supposed to be laying the axe to the root of the trees and cutting down the bad trees with bad fruit and judging the unfruitful like Herod. Why isn't he in prison? I've been doing all this stuff for you, God. I've done my duty. Where are you? Now, we almost treat God, we treat the Lord like a good luck charm, like an automaton, like a machine. If we plug this in, then this result must come out. And God must answer our result by the stuff that we program into it. And if we do it this way, and do this, and we raise our kids this way, and we don't do this, then... Boom, it's all nice and neat and tidy. It comes out like a perfect Excel sheet. Right? Do we ever do that? Right? Is that how we treat God? No, I'm not the only one that does that, right? 
God does things differently than what we want. Okay? God does things differently than what we, we want. You see, he doesn't behave, right? He doesn't behave himself the way we want or expect. He is God. All right? C.S. Lewis said that he isn't a, what, a tame lion, right? Right? He's not a tame lion. I think that's a great description of God. It's a great description of God. Right? He's not doing our bidding. We're to be doing His. We're to be walking in Him. We're to be trusting in Him. Now, how can we miss Jesus? How can we have false expectations of Jesus and what He is doing, what He's about? You know, it might be in the political realm. Take that opportunity to take a drink. It might be in the political realm, right? We really want this candidate to win. We're candidating for him. He's a better man. He's maybe even a godly man, right? This man is righteous. We're on his side. We're going for him. And then the other guy wins. What are you doing, Lord? Right? And we can question things. It could be that God wants us to do something else in life rather than our chosen field. And we buck against them. Maybe God takes you out of what you want to do and puts you into a milking parlor at 3 o'clock in the morning to milk cows so that you learn contentment, right? And submission to authority, right? Maybe he does that. That's not what I had planned, but that's what the Lord had planned for me for three years to teach me some very good lessons about contentment. That I needed to be content and me be able to submit to my authorities and my employers there. Maybe God doesn't want you to marry that guy, or He wants you to wait until you're 28 years old to get married. Or he wants you to wait until you're 36 years old, like one of our dear friends, who, from the time she graduated college, wanted to get married, wanted to raise a family. That was a burning desire in her, and the Lord waited until she was 36. But now she has two wonderful little daughters, right? You see, God's ways are not our ways. We need to get that. Maybe you had a really rotten childhood and you're wondering, why God? Right? You're sovereign. Why didn't you step in and end the abuse? Right? Why did you allow my drunken father to go about his business doing all this junk and mess all this family up? There are all sorts of things we get disillusioned over and worked up about and get discontent about and doubt where God is. And so much of it is because of false expectations of God and not really believing that he is sovereign, that he's the providential God of history, that he's doing all of those things for his plan. 
So we should be honest. We, we think we could do things a lot better than him. Right? Oftentimes we think we could do things a lot better than him. And boy, are we wrong. But you see, at least John does the right thing. And this is what we need to pick up on as well. We need to do the right thing when we have doubts. This is what John does when he has doubts. Just like Job, just like the psalmist, just like Elijah, John takes his concerns and questions right to Jesus himself. Right? He sends his disciples. It's kind of hard for him to go because he's in prison. But he sends two of his disciples right to Jesus and asks him the question. And you know what? You can do likewise. You can do likewise. Right? That's the great thing about prayer. We can go to our Lord in prayer. We can go to our Heavenly Father and ask Him and throw our cares out Him. We just heard that, right? Cast your cares upon Him for He cares for you. And we can cast our cares upon Him. That's what John does. John gets it right. That's what John does right. Even if he's doubting, he's doing the right thing by going to God with his questions. Now in verses 4 through 6, we see Jesus' answer to the two disciples. So here's his answer that he gives. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus' answer here is just so precious. It's so precious and loving and concerned for John. Right? Some see Jesus as being like in his face rebuking John. But if it is a rebuke, it's a gentle rebuke. Right? Because of the context. You read the rest of the context and you see Jesus is gently rebuking John, but it's out of love for him. He doesn't send, in other words, lightning straight into that jail and hit John, right? And zap him for having these doubts and for having these questions. He doesn't do that. That's not his character. He's patient with John. He's long-suffering. He's slow to anger. He's abounding steadfast mercy. Read about the character of God in Psalm 103. He knows that we are but dust. Right? He knows our frame and he knows that we are but dust. Look what Jesus tells John's two disciples. Okay? He, they come to him, right? And he doesn't answer their question the way we would expect. Right? We would kind of expect Jesus to say, they come, are you the one? And we would expect Jesus, we want Jesus to say, yep, I'm the one. Go back and tell John. Right? But look at how Jesus answers. And this can be instructional to us. It's instructive for us as we deal with people as well. This is what Jesus says. Go back to John and remind him of the things you've seen and heard. And remind John of the scriptures that these things that you are seeing and hearing are fulfilling. 
Remind John of the scriptures. Remind him of Isaiah 35, 5, and 6, and 61, 1, and 2. Remind him of those Isaiah passages that Jesus is quoting here. And Jesus quotes from those passages, The blind see, the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. You see, he gives them the source so that they can kind of get into God's word and study it and remember it and remember those things that have been given to them. He, he takes them to the source, the word. That's instructive for us when we're dealing with people, when we're talking with people. Well, what does God's word say about that? A lot of times we just want the answer, right? But we don't want the struggle to think through how God's word applies to those things. But it's instructive for us to go to them and say, well, what does God's word say about that? And to get them to think and wrestle and struggle. Okay, do that with your kids. And then they can take God's word and draw conclusions from it. Right? And that's what Jesus does here. Here's what the anointed one, the Messiah, does and looks like. You see me doing these things? Right? Here's what the anointed one is portrayed like in the scriptures. Do you hear my gospel message that I'm preaching to the poor? Do you see these things being fulfilled? Remind John of these scriptures that I'm fulfilling these prophecies directly, says Jesus. Here's the real Jesus. This is what the real Messiah is doing. Don't get caught up in your wrong expectations of me, says Jesus, or caught up in your circumstances that can blind you to what I'm doing. And so Jesus is really telling John, and he's telling us that he's under no obligation to subscribe to our plans or our ideas or our expectations or our wants. He's under no obligation to do any of those things. But he is fulfilling what the Father has given him to do. He's the obedient son. He's the faithful son that loves his father so much that he's being obedient to his father. And he's doing exactly what the father has given him to do. And here's the thing. He's under no obligation to us. But he has given us salvation. Right? He's under no obligation to make our lives easy or hard or anything in between. He's under no obligation to do any of that, but he has given us salvation. He's given us sinners salvation. He has redeemed us. He has covered us in his blood and his righteousness as we are believing and trusting in him. He's given us eternal life through the cross and resurrection he is risen and is ascended so that he may be our intercessor, our advocate, the judge, our advocate. That's a good thing. That's a good position to be in. He's giving us eternal blessedness. Right? And then all we can think about is wanting a life of ease and comfort. Or as Francis Schaeffer would say, a life of personal peace and affluence. Right? He's given us so much. And we just want things to be easy. Right? So he tells John, 
through his disciples in verse 6. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Okay? John, hear this. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Because of me. Don't be offended by me, John. Don't be, be offended because I don't follow your ideas of what the Messiah should be like. Look, John, you're blessed when you submit to my ways, to my providence, to my sovereignty. John, trust me. That's what he's saying to every one of us. Trust me. Trust me. Look to him. He is the sovereign Lord. He's the king. He's the king. Well, then the two disciples depart to go back to John. But it's interesting, because I think we can see the multitudes thinking right here. Okay? I think we can see the multitudes thinking right here, because what Jesus says, yeah, what's John's problem? What's John's problem? Right? I mean, look at us. We would never think like that or act like him. Right? And so Jesus turns to them and he says this. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. Look, you went out to see John. So let's not forget that, folks. You went out to see John, right? You went out. What did you go out to see? And he repeats this three times, right? Look, I'll tell you who John the Baptist is. And Jesus is going to tell them. And notice, it is not who, but what did you go out to see? Okay? Did you go into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? Right? That, that, that is a man with no backbone? A man who's tossed about by every wind of doctrine? Is that what you went out to see? Did you go out to see a man with no conviction? Why'd you go out there? Is that the character that John had? Is that what you went out to see it, that attracted you that you felt the need to go out and see? Come on. You know the answer to this? Says John. Or says Jesus. John had a backbone. John had a backbone. He uncompromisingly preached against the sins of even the king. That's why he's in prison now. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel. He wasn't fearful. He called the, the Pharisees, right? He called the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. Don't forget that. That's not a reed that's shaken by the wind, folks. He preached the message of repentance and faith without compromise. Don't forget that. Okay? Or what did you go out to see, he says the second time. What did you go out to see the second time? Look at what he says there. And really what he's saying is, did you go out to see an effeminate, high-class high class dandy? That's what he's saying. 
Did you go out to see an effeminate, high-class dandy, a a simpering, listing courtier who would only say what the rich or the kings wanted to hear in order to get favors from the powerful? Is that what you went out to see? Is that the type of guy John was? Come on, people. Right? John preached a powerful message that stirred up the passions of the king to put John into prison. He wasn't interested in soft clothes. He was wearing camel hair. He was eating locusts and honey. He had a belt strapped around his waist. He probably had dreadlocks. (laughs) There wasn't a man-pleasing bone in John's body. Then Jesus says, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Right? That's exactly what they went out to see because there hadn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. And all of a sudden, John comes on the scene and there's a prophet in Israel again. Let's go see the prophet. Let's go see the prophet in Israel. God's speaking again. Now John comes and acts like a prophet. And he says and preaches a message like a prophet. That's what you went out to see. And then Jesus says, I know you. You went out to see, even perhaps unbeknownst to me, or unbeknownst to you, you went out to see more than a prophet. You went out to to see more than a prophet. This prophet had a special mission. This prophet, John, was the one who was prepared by God from his birth to prepare the way for the king, for the Messiah. And then Jesus quotes Malachi 3.1, demonstrating that John was the direct and exact fulfillment of this. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, talking about the anointed one, the Messiah, who will prepare your way before you. King, Messiah. Right, that's who John is. Don't forget that, people. You went out to see him, and that's who he is. Don't get on your high horse about John. The things that I was rebuking him about. Take heed to yourself, lest you fall. Jesus is so patient with John. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. And it's so sweet and beautiful how steadfast he is with John. How caring he is for him. How much he loves John. I mean, you can't read that and say, Jesus didn't care one whit about John. Right? Cast your cares upon Jesus, for he cares for you. It's the same God. It's the same Jesus, right? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He might be doing things the way we don't want him to do things, right? But we are to be in subjection to him. We are to be worshiping the king. We are to be following him, right? We go to him with our concerns and our needs. It's okay. Jesus has big enough shoulders to shoulder any burden that we have. His burden is easy, right? His yoke is light. 
Do you see the love that Jesus has for John here? Do you see the love that Jesus has for John? Isn't it sweet? Now here's a, here's a question that came up in our family conversation this week. Do we like the prophets of our day? Right? Do we like the prophets of our day? You know, the people that are a bit edgy. They may be a little bit disrespectable, a little disheveled, who might say some rough things, are a little over the edge sounding. But they're really preaching the word. Right? Do we like the prophets of our day that call us to repentance for the sins of our day? You see, it's so easy for us to be armchair quarterbacks just like the multitudes here with John. Right? It's so easy for us to be armchair quarterbacks, those who are on the edge, who are working in the trenches for the truth, who are critical. And, and we're critical of those who are there who are in the trenches and saying hard stuff and saying stuff that we don't necessarily want to hear the sins of our day, the sins that we have who may sound harsh dogmatic, sure of themselves confident and boy we're taught not to be confident today about anything that we believe you're much cooler if you doubt it That's what we're taught in our culture, to doubt stuff, to doubt truth. And when the prophet of our day comes in and and is confident and he sounds harsh and dogmatic and sure, we don't like those guys. We don't like those guys. We criticize them. We say, well, they should have said things a little differently. Well, maybe they should have nuanced this a little bit more here. Right? And they nuance, we want them to nuance everything right out of existence. Right? So that there is no conviction anymore. That's what we want. Toss the conviction right out the door. We don't like prophets who speak to our sins. We think we like prophets. Especially we as Reformed people, we think we like prophets. You know who the Reformation prophets were, right? We had Luther and Calvin and Knox. We call them our heroes of the Reformation faith. Right? But they spoke to the sins of their day. Today, we love them because they're not speaking to our sins. Right? That's why they're our heroes today, because they're not speaking to our sins. And they're removed from us from a distance by time and space, but boy, if they were with us right now, We'd have a really hard time with those guys. I mean, we would. Just pick up some of the stuff that those guys wrote. Right? Read in their actual words some of the stuff that they said about each other. And we think, oh, man, are you kidding me? I can't believe you said that. Right? Those are the prophets of their day. We don't like people who preach to our sins, who correct, rebuke, teach, and train us in righteousness, who preach repentance for the sins of our day. We need to get over that. Are they preaching biblically? Forget the soft effeminacy, right? 
the simpering, simpering courtier, the lisping courtier. Forget that stuff. Is this man preaching God's word? Is he being faithful to God's word when he's calling this nation to repentance? That needs to be our question. Is he being faithful to God? Even if he does sound a little bit edgy? I mean, look at John. Right? This, this, this is a strange dude, man. Right? He's not walking around in soft clothes. Alright. That was a side note. Then Jesus really steps up to the plate and he tells the disciples who John really is in verse 11. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Can you imagine something like that being said about you? Well done, thy good and faithful servant, on steroids. Right? You get what he's saying here? This is the highest praise that you could have. Think about, think about all of the great heroes of the Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joshua, Moses, Caleb, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah. You take all of them and Jesus says not one of them was as great as John the Baptist. Jesus is saying, you shake your heads at him, right? You shake your heads at this prophet. You shake your heads at him because of the stuff that I was just talking to him about. Look, you don't get the blessed work that John has done for my kingdom. There is not one greater in all of the Old Testament. Now that's great praise indeed. Jesus thinks pretty highly of John the Baptist. And then look what Jesus says right after that. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Wow, what? Every believer in the kingdom, this side of the teaching and ministry of Jesus Christ, on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, who is now enjoying the ascension of the risen and reigning and ruling king of all. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, says Jesus, right? Those who are sitting in his kingdom right now, the least of those is greater than John. I mean, it goes from glory to glory. This is awesome. Now what does greater mean? Greater in abilities? That's how we tend to think of when we talk about greatness and think about greatness. That's what we tend to think about. Greater in, in abilities. Great abilities. I don't think any one of us could match John the Baptist's abilities. Right? So it's not talking about the abilities Jesus' meaning here, greater in extraordinary blessedness. 
greater in blessing. We've been blessed beyond measure more than John the Baptist was, as great as he is. It's so much better for us now that we have the advantage to see all that John couldn't see. To where he would even doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. We have the completed story about who Jesus is. We have the completed canon of scriptures that John didn't have. We are in a far greater, more blessed place than John was, as great as he was. Now, why would we want to forsake that? Why would we want to do anything that would displease our Lord? Why would we not want to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Because he has brought us from glory to glory. Why would we not want to love him with all of our being? And when we love him, we so want to keep his commandments. Because there's freedom in Christ. And that's what he's brought us to. Freedom from our sins. So forsake those. Don't hold on to those. Turn to Christ. Trust in Him. Look to Him. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Behold His glory. When we look at Him, we are changed. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank You for the good gift of your word. And we thank you that you have given us this, your word about John and about Jesus and what Jesus is saying about John and Lord, what he is saying indeed about us. Oh Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We deserve none of it, but you have been kind to us. And Lord, we pray that we would behold your glory and that you would increase our love for you every day of our lives, that we may grow in greater Christ-likeness as we behold your glory. And we pray this all in Jesus' most precious, holy, powerful, and glorious name. And Lord, we now praise you by singing the prayer that you taught your disciples. He says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. One of the great privileges we have in sharing in this congregation is coming to the Lord's table weekly. When we come to the Lord's table, we are coming to the Lord Himself. And to be invited to share at the table and table fellowship with the Lord is to be invited to be His friend. This coming is not merely intellectual. At this table, we actually sit, we sing, we eat, we drink. We are members of the same household that Jesus Christ is. To be invited to share the table fellowship with him is to be invited to be his friend. We see this in the verses we just read. This is why it is called communion. We are sharing together. We are partaking together. 
We come because we have communion with God. And because we have communion with God, we have communion with one another as well. We love God, and so that as well we love one another. This is a great privilege. Indeed, especially when we are mindful of our own infirmities and our own sins. To be like that poor woman in the Gospels with long hemorrhaging, we come in order to just touch Jesus, to be with him. We have come. We come trembling in our infirmities, and we are released from here as his friend, trembling for joy. So come. Welcome to Christ. His body, broken for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.